0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Imagine for a moment that you and your spouse are living in a deep forest where you have been surviving for months through a bitter winter in the company of others who share the same situation. The world is at war and you are considered the target of a powerful and well-armed military force. You as well as the hundreds of others who are trying to survive in this constantly hunted and constantly moving forest camp, have one thing in common, and that's your religion, which has been singled out and marked for extinction by the country which has now seized your homeland. That same country and its allies have declared war against half the countries on the globe. You are both wearing the same clothes you arrived in six months ago when you escaped from captivity as you waited for a train which, as it was put to you, was taking you to a work camp. You now know better. You have survived on soup made from tree bark and roots now for months. You've been sleeping on the ground in a wood and earth dugout that you helped dig and build. Your body and hands are caked with dirt and grime. You are starved and emaciated, but hanging on. The future looks grim, but right now, you are free. You have been trained in the use of firearms, and you have vowed that you will not be taken alive. You are not the same person you were a year ago. You feel as if you are living a very surrealistic bad dream. One of you goes on raids to get food and weapons, raids during which men are killed, enemies as well as members of your group of partisans. More raids are killing locals who sympathize with and give information as to your whereabouts to the enemy to save their own skins, some of them you knew personally as neighbors. All you have known for nearly a year is fear and loss, and you wonder if you will survive, and what is coming next. That's all you have left to think about, because everything else is gone, just a memory. One of the leaders of this resistance group has called for a meeting of everyone there. There has been a large influx of refugees to your group in the past week. There are many new faces. Some are old, some are sick, some are children, some are bleeding from gunshot wounds. All have set aside their never-ending communal duties to listen. All are watching and listening intently as this leader, mounted on a white horse so people can see and hear him, speaks. His name is Tuvia Bielski. His three brothers, Zeus, Assail and 12-year-old Aaron, are leaders of this camp and they are standing near him. He is wearing a brown jacket, high boots and Soviet-style military cap. A submachine gun is strapped over his shoulder. You see the faces of the people standing in the snow, wrapped in whatever they've been able to find to warm themselves. Their faces are worn and tired, but their eyes are fixed on Tuvia. He is their one hope. My brothers, he says, we were once but a few, and now we are many. To survive, we will all have to work. We all have abilities. We all can learn to do what must be done. More people will come, We will welcome them. Men, women, children, old, young, sick. That doesn't matter. They come here to live, to survive, to be free. We all share a common God. We all share the same enemies. You will all be trained, men and women, to handle a firearm and to use it when needed. There will be no pregnancies here. We are not equipped to care for babies. Regardless of how you lived before, this will be different. Look at the person standing on either side of you. You are responsible for their survival, and they are responsible for you. When orders come from myself or those I appoint as my next in command, you will listen. The crumbling, the petty jealousies, the harassment of women, any feeling of entitlement, and any doubt in our decisions will end now. If you think life will be better somewhere else, you are wrong. Here in these woods, you are free. Nowhere else will that hold true for you. Every healthy man in this group is needed for the resistance. Those who can't fight will venture out to find more lost souls and bring them here. Both jobs are equally as dangerous. There will be death. Some will not return home here to this forest. But saving lives, not killing, not revenge, is our main mission. I would rather save one old woman than kill ten of our enemies. We will take all the people with courage enough to come here. Tuvia leaves. The meeting ends and you return to your jobs cutting wood for fires, building dugouts, preparing food in a primitive cookhouse, serving as guard around the perimeter, reloading shells, repairing guns, cleaning, sewing, tending to wounds, caring for the aged and sickly. All the basics of survival. That night you enter the following in your diary. December 12, 1941. We are alive and free. That is all of God's blessing that we can ask for. Bad news came with new refugees from nearby towns, and many weep for their lost ones. Tuvia approached them and asked them, Where were you all this time? Why did you delay your coming? Why did you wait until all the members of your family were slaughtered? And then he was told how his mother, father, wife, and child were killed. Everything you just heard actually happened. This is the true story of four brothers who defied the Nazis, saved 1,246 Jews from death, and built a hard-nosed resistance group which operated out of the deep forests of Belarus, giving hope to thousands of Jews outside that there was still a chance someone was fighting for them. Their names were Tuvia, Zeus, Essail, and Aaron Bielski. Their incredible story was basically unknown until more recent years when Tuvia's diary, written in Yiddish, was translated and became public. A movie called Defiance was released in 2008, starring Daniel Craig, lately of James Bond fame, who played Tuvia, Jamie Bell, who played Abe Woodall in the Revolutionary War epic Turn, portrayed Assail, and Liev Schreiber, who has been in a number of movies, including The Manchurian Candidate, played Zeus. The movie Defiance, according to a great majority of all the survivors, was accurate in every way, but the only comment being that the duration and horrors and heroism of what really took place could not be shown in a two-hour Hollywood movie. Each of the 1,246 Jews who survived in Bielski's brigade, as well as those who joined other resistance groups, had a different story of incredible heroism and loss. It would take a long, long miniseries to even begin to tell all the story said David Bielski, one of the surviving sons of Tuvia. In this multi-part story, we will tell the incredible, inspirational, true story of the Bielski brothers, and we will talk about the making of the movie Defiance. If you were of the mind that millions of Jews went down like sheep without a fight, you have been badly misinformed. There were a number of resistance efforts, and resistance came in many forms, It requires attention to true stories like this one to get the full picture of what happened during those World War II years, what life and survival for Jews and all of Germany's enemies was really like. The story of the Bielski brothers is a history that has rarely been told. So settle into your driver's seat or armchair or whatever is keeping you occupied right now. Grab that favorite cup of coffee or refreshment and learn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network of seven weekly shows and a few others, totaling now over 1,050 episodes and listened to worldwide by millions. I enjoy my work here very much, and I tell history as it really happened and let you sort it out. I really enjoy stories about unsung heroes, and this story of four brothers who risked their necks to save their fellow Jews from certain death is without a doubt one of the most moving hero stories I have ever come across. All four of the brothers survived the partisan resistance effort in the forest. One started a small trucking company in New York City years later, another working for him until late in his years. They never capitalized on their incredible wartime accomplishments. There is a stone honoring one of those two brothers, Tuvia, in the Holocaust Memorial Mall, a small park on Sheepshead Bay which doesn't mention that he lived much of his life five subway stops away. His wife, Lilka, became a widower in 1987 when Tuvia died unheralded and largely unknown. The way of most heroes. His own family didn't know a stone had been placed in his honor. Lydia would later say, in America, he was just a number, like everyone else. But the living descendants of the 1,246 people he and his brothers saved have now grown to over 25,000 people and they alone speak for his accomplishments. The names of the older brothers, once again, were Tuvia, Assail, and Zeus. The younger brother's name was Aaron. Together they saved as many Jews during World War II as Oskar Schindler, and organized a military force that killed hundreds of enemy soldiers. Their presence alone kept a candle of freedom lit in the hearts of all Jews who were still clinging to life in the wide region of Central and Eastern Europe, which was dominated by Nazi invaders. Thanks to researchers and authors like Peter Duffy, who wrote the Bielski Brothers, the true story of three men who defied the Nazis, saved 1,200 Jews, and built a village in the forest, we now know just how heroic an accomplishment this was. They were called, among other names, the Forest Jews, and from the fall of 1941 to July of 1944, they kept up a relentless effort to save lives and terrorize the Nazis who were intent upon killing every Jew in Europe. Hitler and his Nazi party were hell-bent on eradicating Jews as well as gypsies, Slavs, and captured Russians, and they were tightening their grip on nearly all of Europe. First, I would like to set an image of your mind of where Belarus is. Byelorussia, now called Belarus, was a republic of the Soviet Union when World War II began. It is sandwiched between the western border of Russia and the eastern border of Poland, which sets directly to the east of Germany. Ukraine borders it to the south, and Latvia to the north. Above Latvia is Estonia and the Baltic Sea. Poland, which was overrun by Nazis in 1939, served as a direct gateway for Germany to attack Russia beginning with Belarus in 1941. And this wasn't the first time Germany had launched its forces against the Russian Empire. In the first year of World War I, German tanks and occupying forces rolled right through the heart of Belarus, the shortest path required to conquer Russia. The little village of Stankovich, where the Bielski family lived, and the region around it, was transformed into an occupation zone beginning in 1915. Life under the Russian Tsar, if you were a Jew, meant that you were excluded from living on any land in Russia save for a swath of land extending from the Baltic Sea southward to the Black Sea. Jews couldn't buy, sell, rent, or lease property, so they often relied on friendly non-Jews and neighbors to accomplish having a place to live. They lived in a world of primitive wooden homes topped with straw roofs, and for the most part their most prized possessions were a horse and a four-wheeled cart. The nearest city with a Jewish population was Novogrudek, which had good schools and a synagogue. The Bilskis by the 1930s were the only Jews in Stankovich, and they operated a mill. Their father David did business with his neighbors, who were Orthodox Christian Belarusians and Catholic Poles. He spoke a number of languages, and the children had to learn other languages as well to get along. When the Germans occupied Belarus in World War I, they were less harsh to the Jews than the Russians are. The Germans occupied a large abandoned home close to where the Bielskis lived, and young Tuvia, now ten years old, spent time around the German soldiers for two years, learning the German language. World War I took a terrible toll on Russia, as did the winter of 1916, but because the Bielskis had a mill they were able to ride it out. People needed their grain turned into flour so they could have bread, if nothing else. Then the Soviet Union took over Belarus in 1919, and in that same year Poland and Lithuania attacked, with Poland occupying the Belarus capital of Minsk. That happened in August of that year, 1919. The Poles then fought the Soviets all through Belarus, while the Jews remained neutral, which angered the Poles. The fighting continued long after the Great War ended, finally stopping with the Treaty of Riga, which gave the western portion of Belarus, where the Bielskis lived, to Poland. The Bielskis were able to place their property and mill in their own name and started doing business with Novogrudek and Lida. The Bielskis had many children, and they had to learn to stand up for themselves often. After some local farmers stole a portion of Bielski hay, Tuvia went to see them. One peasant told Tuvia, who was now about 17, to run home or he'd give him a beating. Tuvia walked back to his house, not ran, and told his two younger brothers, Zeus and Asael, what had happened. The three picked up scythes from the barn and went back to the neighbor's house, where they got into a heated exchange. One of the brothers then swung his scythe at one of the peasants. It missed, but the neighbors quickly got the idea that the Bielski brothers would defend themselves, and they ran. Later on, a similar encounter took place when a peasant who was renting a field from the Bielskis was discovered stealing hay. This time Tuvia approached alone, with a scythe, and challenged the man and his four friends to return the stolen hay. One spoke up, and said, Get away from here, or I'll kill you. Tuvia dropped the scythe, and knocked the man to the ground, beating him with his fists. The four watchers laughed at their friends, saying, A young Jew has done away with a scoundrel that the whole village is afraid of, and they made no play for Tuvia. After that day, no one stole any hay from the Bielskis. By 1927, Tuvia was 21 years old and had ten brothers and sisters. He was now over six feet tall, had broad shoulders, and carried himself well. He was drafted into the Polish army and assigned to Warsaw, where he served the 30th Infantry Battalion. Warsaw was a city, and there was a great deal of hatred there for Jews. When Tuvia asked the military cook if he could have just a smear of chicken fat for his bread, the cook said, Get out of here, you scabby Jew, and immediately Tuvia grabbed the man with his right hand "'and punched him with his left. "'Then he picked up a chair "'and smashed it in his face for good measure. "'The cook spent two weeks in the hospital, "'and when he got out, "'he told Tuvia he would catch him one day and kill him. "'Tuvia responded by saying, "'If you give me such a warning again, "'I will bury you alive, not dead. "'Tuvia had to undergo a thorough investigation "'by his officers, to whom he explained "'that the cook was not insulting Tuvia alone. "'He was insulting the uniform, "'and thereby insulting the entire Polish army.' Tuvia explained that he was proud of the army he served. They led him off with no punishment. He had shown the ability to react with tact rather than with force, when no force was required, a trait which was to separate him from his brothers in the trials to come. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. By the middle 1930s, Tuvia was married and running a business in Subadniki. Where he was able to travel, gaining a wider view of the world and business. Meanwhile, his younger brothers, Asael and Zeus, were taking more and more responsibility with their father's mill, plus two more mills that the family had acquired in neighboring villages. Asael was the quiet one, two years younger than Tuvia, and Zeus was four years his junior. Two older brothers had already moved to America. The youngest brother was Aaron, who was twenty years younger than Tuvia. The sisters took jobs in neighboring towns and cities and got married. Zeus was the loudest and most boisterous of the brothers, and he was a fighter, the first to throw a punch when it was called for. In the 30s, in the U.S., he would have been described as a rounder. In 1939, Hitler signed a non-aggression pact with Russia, a pact which he would tear up later after using this move to attack and occupy Czechoslovakia and western Poland, which he did in August and September of 1939, respectively. Then one million Soviet troops invaded Poland, moving into the western portions of Belarus and the Ukraine, becoming masters of 13.5 million citizens, the Bielskis among them. In villages all across Belarus, Jewish families welcomed the Soviets, happy to be rid of the Polish rulers. They were to see the light soon, however, as the Communist Party officials moved in and assumed authority, forbidding the use of the Hebrew language and dismantling Zionist organizations. The schools were shuttered and transformed into Russian institutions staffed with socialist communist professors whose intent it was to destroy the previous culture and brainwash students with Stalinist and Marxist philosophies. Anyone speaking out against this change was cancelled from public discourse and at worst sent to camps for further brainwashing. Any conservative ideas that even halfway resembled freedom or liberty were considered heresy and anti-government. The NKVD, the forerunner of the KGB, was in charge of cracking down on the Poles and the Jews. Public beatings became commonplace. Neighbors were turned into spies. The worst offenders were shipped to camps in Siberia. Businesses, including the Bielski's meals, were seized. Old David Bielski was forced to sweep floors in his own store as a punishment for being a business owner. According to the Socialists, he was a capitalist pig, or a capitalist bourgeois. The socialist communist left was in full control of Belarus. Capitalism was dead. Everything belonged to the party. The economy was soon shattered, and food shortages became the norm. Tuvia, understanding the nature of what was headed his way, liquidated his business and fled to nearby Lida. He was now 33 years old. He rented a room in Lida and found a job as an assistant bookkeeper. He also found a new wife, for his prior marriage had ended when his past wife refused to leave their town with him. She did not share his vision of the future, and he ended up being right. Throughout the winter of 1940, as the war drifted closer, refugees from Nazi-occupied sections of Poland began streaming through Belarus, bringing stories of Nazi atrocities. But Zeus and others still believed that Germany and the Soviet Union were getting along fine, and that the Nazis were not committing atrocities. After all, the media, which was then radio and newspaper, was telling nothing of what was happening in the West. All they would say was that the Germans were cultured, kind people, giving the impression that they would never do those kinds of things. But Zeus and Assail would soon learn the truth. In early 1941, they were both drafted into the Soviet Army. Eleven-year-old Aaron and his 17-year-old brother Yakov stayed at home in Stankovich. All that changed on June 22, 1941, when Hitler launched a surprise attack on the Soviet Union, using three million men spread across a thousand-mile frontier to do it. It was a long first day of bombings, shelling, and infantry attacks like never before seen. Tuvia's city of Lida was attacked, and he was able to grab his wife and flee as the German Luftwaffe rained bombs on every major city in Belarus. Tuvia and his wife Sonia raced toward Stankovitch to be with Tuvia's parents. Zeus and his unit were besieged with tanks and bombs. Their command center was wiped out, and they were left to fend for themselves. They changed into civilian clothes and gave a different story to whoever approached them, "'Russian or German. "'Zeus made it to Novogrudic "'and found his wife Celia, "'who had survived the bombing of their home. "'She was eight months pregnant. "'He, like his brother Tuvia, "'was headed now for home in the country, "'or at least to what he hoped was still home. "'A sail was already there. "'All three were there on July 1st "'when a German military unit "'set up headquarters on their homestead. "'The Germans quickly used the Poles, "'who had been occupying much of the abandoned businesses "'and farms in the area.' as their allies, in an effort to rout out the Jews. The Poles caught Tuvia and his brother Abraham in an administration building and beat Tuvia and Abraham to a pulp using wooden sticks and belts. Tuvia and Abraham were able to escape, and Tuvia now knew he would get his revenge. The next time he was with Nazis or their Pole sympathizers, he would bring a gun. He returned to the farm only to find that the German unit had left and the farm was abandoned. Zeus and a sail had taken to the woods and were now living there. Later, Zeus returned to Novogrodek to see his wife, and that city was under full Nazi control by then, the Nazis using a police force made up of Belarusians and Poles who had volunteered to crack down on Jews and dissenters. The Jews were forced to wear the yellow star of David on their fronts and their backs. Zeus and his wife managed to find a hiding place. On one day, dressed in civilian clothes, Zeus witnessed a group of Jews, many of them doctors, lawyers, teachers, nurses, professionals, standing in five rows surrounded by local police and German soldiers. A German band was playing an upbeat Strauss waltz. A Nazi officer arrived in a car, got out, and fired his pistol into the air. This served as a signal to the Nazi soldiers to open up on the first row, all of whom were downed by machine-gun fire. Zeus watched as a young boy standing next to his father in the second line said, "'Father, they're killing us,' and the Nazis kept on firing until all 52 of the people were dead. Their only crime? They were Jews. Zeus was now a witness to the German atrocities. He was a believer. He was able to escape Novograd and return to the farm where his mother sat alone in terror. Zeus's father had been taken by the Nazis.' Death squads were now arriving in every town in Belarus. Still, many Jews living in the smaller towns in the country could not believe that death squads were killing and removing Jews by the thousands. Remember again, the media was not telling the truth. The Nazis were now looking for a sail, Tuvia, and Zeus, who were moving deeper into the forest that surrounded their home. Their younger brother Aaron served as a messenger between them and their father, who had returned to their home, but only for a short time. Aaron was caught making a run to deliver messages, and the Nazis forced him to dig his own grave. Then they said they would kill him if he didn't give up his older brother's locations. But he wouldn't talk. They then dragged the 12-year-old boy to the station where the man on duty took pity on him and told him to get lost, which he did, quickly. Abraham and his brother Yakov were killed trying to escape. On Sunday, December 7, 1941, the same day that Pearl Harbor was attacked, The Nazis were busy rounding up all the Jews in the countries and towns surrounding the Bielskis' hometown. They lined the people up and separated them, putting skilled workers on the right and non-skilled workers and women and children on the left. People started to scream and cry. Don't worry, said one German. We're only going to separate you for a while. We're going to give you homes. You'll have everything. In groups of 50, Jews were then loaded at gunpoint onto waiting trucks. The temperature was below zero. When the trucks stopped, the people were ordered to remove their clothing. They were then told to stand at the edge of long burrows that would serve as their graves. They were then machine-gunned to their deaths. On one day, more than 4,000 Jews were murdered. Among those lying naked and dead in the ditches as the bulldozers filled them in were David and Biel Bielski, Zeus's wife Celia Bielski, and her baby girl. The two men and women were able to crawl out of the ditch. One made it back to the courthouse in Novogrudik. Fifteen hundred more Jews were being kept there, and now they knew. "'But how could word get out with no media and no one to tell? "'And who would care, or even believe it? "'When news of the mass slaughter reached Tubia and Zeus, "'they were overcome with rage, and guilt, "'for not being there to fight when the moment came. "'By the fall of 1940, Hitler frustrated that Britain had not yet capitulated. "'Indeed, their Royal Air Force had taken on the mighty Luftwaffe "'and outgunned the Germans two planes to one.' turned his wrath toward Russia and began Operation Barbarossa, the ground and air attack on Russia, in an effort to conquer that empire. And at the same time, Germany began a killing spree of Jews and other undesirables that has never since been matched in human history. And this was before they began gassing them in concentration camps. Germany sent four Einsengrappen killing units, whose sole purpose it was to murder as many Jews as they could find. These units traveled in four deadly columns which were split up into smaller commando units, each one assisted by locals who knew who the Jews were and where they lived. These locals spoke the language, knew the terrain, and could convince neighbor to betray neighbor. On September 29th and 30th of 1940, more than 33,000 Jews were shot to death by one commando unit of Einsengruppen C outside of Kiev, Ukraine. On October 23rd, 1940, over 19,000 Jews were shot near Odessa, Ukraine. In November of that year, 30,000 Jews were massacred in a forest outside Riga in Latvia. The other Einsengruppen columns were just as effective. It was because the killing was so cruel and so bloody and done on such a massive scale that Heinrich Himmler felt sorry for his Nazi soldiers and designed a way to kill millions of Jews inside of gas houses. So his soldiers would not have to bear the psychological pain of personally killing tens of thousands of Jews in mass. This assumed, of course, that they had any conscience left. Tuvia Bielski believed that it was his responsibility to gather up all his relatives who still lived under Nazi domination, and he knew that his wife Sonia and her family were still alive in Lida. Lida's community hadn't yet been penned in defense ghettos, but the German presence was complete. He found Sonia and ordered her to come with him then pleaded with her family to join them, but they insisted on staying, making it clear that they believed they were safe. They told him, Many of us look like Jews, Tuvia. You do not. You look like a Gentile, and we would freeze to death in the woods. Some of us did escape, but we did not know who to trust. For every person who did escape, ten of us were killed. Some of us did escape, but we did not know who to trust, and we returned. Just outside Leta, Tuvia stopped by the home of a wealthy Pole he had known through business, and that man welcomed both he and his wife, agreeing to shelter them, risking his life, of course, to do so. Sonia took on the job of seamstress for them, and he gave Tuvia a gun, a Belgian browning, along with four bullets. From him, Tuvia heard stories of partisan fighters, and he wanted to fight, but he needed comrades. He sought out an old friend from his mill business, whose name was Misha Rodinsky, who was a communist and a Gentile, and they talked. But Tuvia soon came to realize that because of their differences, he could never trust Misha like a brother. Later, Tuvia met with three Russian soldiers who had become separated from their units and suggested that they team up. But when one pulled a knife on Tuvia one evening and called him a dirty Jew, Tuvia knew that he could not trust them either. It was at this point that he knew the only ones he could trust to fight for him were his brothers. Knowing Sonia was safe, he set out toward Stankovich in March of 1942 and was able to find his brothers, Zeus, Assail, and young Aaron, in the woods. Together they soon found two Russian partisans who agreed to join them, and together they raided the home of a local policeman who was a Nazi collaborator who had a weapons cache in his home. The raid was successful, and it led to the Bielski brothers meeting the commander of the Russian partisan unit to which the two Russian soldier friends belonged, which was led by a Russian named Gromov. He congratulated them on the raid, and they talked. The decision was made that since the Bielskis' goal was to form a fighting unit and shelter their families, that would not work by teaming with the Russians, and that the Bielskis should go it alone, finding other Jews, and not Russians, to form their unit. Gromov gave the Bielskis weapons and ammunition, and pledged to work with them in the future on an as-needed basis. The four brothers then began seeking out relatives that were still living. Then they heard that mass killings of Jews were taking place in Lida, Tuvia sent a messenger to find Sonia's family, to find out that they were still alive, and to offer them a last chance to escape. They were still alive, and now they took the chance. There were four of them. They crawled under barbed wire at night and across a field, then followed directions they had received which led them to Sonia. Soon Tuvia joined them, and led them deep into the woods behind Stankovich, where he and his brothers were beginning a small community of escaped Jews, in a forest camp. When Sonia's family reached the camp, they saw several people sitting around a campfire over which two chickens and a pot of broth were cooking. The elder relative, Aaron Zenselsky, was doing the cooking. Tuvia looked at the pot and said jokingly, "'Is this food kosher?' And of course the food wasn't kosher. They were cooking whatever they could find just to survive. But the elder Aaron answered with a laugh, saying, "'Yes, that's my responsibility.' And for the first time in many months of terror— Twenty-five Jews had their first laugh and were able to settle down to a deep sleep. Be sure to join us next week Sunday night for part two of the Bielski brothers as they put together a plan to rescue more Jews from the ghettos where thousands of Jews awaited their death and plan raids against the Nazis to secure weapons, ammunition, survival tools, and medicine for their growing forest camp. Before we wrap up today, I would like to add some portions of an interview with the youngest brother Aaron in later years. "'Question. What was your role in the Bielski Brigade?' "'Aaron. To pick up children in the ghetto. For some reason or another, I never wore the yellow Star of David. I don't know why. Maybe I was stupid. But on the other hand, I was able to walk where no Jew could. I lost two brothers because they had the Star of David. I don't think for a moment that I was a hero in any way or matter. This was pure luck because there were stronger people than me, and they were butchered. But I was lucky enough to prevail.' "'Question. What was life like in the forest?' "'Aaron. Life in the forest was great. There was freedom. You saw the sunshine. All we needed was food. And we won. If you wanted to sleep, you slept. If there was no bed, you slept on the snow. Whatever it was, it was. I had a rifle. but They didn't think I should be on the first line. They wouldn't let me. They protected me. My brother Assail was probably the most powerful individual I ever met.' "'Question. How accurate were the portrayals in the movie?' "'Aaron. What happened was much worse than what the movie portrays. At that time, Aaron's wife, Henrika, was also present at the interview,' and she answered. "'The movie did not show how they fought for freedom. How Aaron was running to the ghetto and leading people from there to the forest. How they were going to fight for the food. How there was a cow in the forest and the milk was only for the children. Aaron was thirteen and helping the younger children.' The movie didn't show how they trekked through the snow, and some froze to death. And I will add, in Belarus alone, nearly two million Jews were killed during the three years of Nazi occupation. The murders were committed by Nazis, Nazi sympathizers, Latvians, Lithuanians, and Poles, who later swore that they were ordered by the Nazis to kill them. To kill Jews. Many of these people changed their identity and their story in the years after World War II. These mass murders were well documented by German officers who sent the death figures proudly up to high command. How there can be people who to this day deny that the Holocaust ever took place is beyond the scope of human imagination. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate our growing list of patrons, the listeners who take an active role in supporting our 1001 Stories Network by going to patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork and pledging a few dollars a month to see us forward. We present History as it Happened, and we don't pull any punches here. It is well researched, and we try to put you, the listener, in the picture so you can experience it. A big thanks to these supporters, and I'm proud to name some first names. Brett, Rachel, Anders, John, Pooney, Roberta, Tamara, Mark, Tom, Nicholas, Vinny, Cody, John, Scott, James, Philip, Barbara, Sally, Beverly, Stephen, Terry, Joe, Tom, Sarah, Scott, Dan, Dusty, Irving, Mary, Rauno, and many others. Thank you all so very, very much for being there for us. We appreciate it. We also appreciate reviews, and here are some recent ones. The first one, five stars. Love this pod. This has become my go-to podcast. It makes the hours I spend behind the wheel fly by. Down from JJ Noel, Apple Podcast, US And this one, fantastic podcast, five stars. Like listening to old school radio shows or having a family member tell you a story. I wait weekly for new shows, and I especially love the series on Earhart, along with anything on Area 51 or Aliens. I love the show. Keep up the great work. Down from M. Grace, 27, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great podcast, five stars. I love history podcasts and listen to them daily. They make tasks go by so much faster. I have been especially enjoying 1001 podcast recently because Mr. H has been diligent about steering clear of current politics. Thank you. I appreciate so much that you state facts, period. And let the listener decide what their opinions will be. Keep up the good work. Down from Prairie Ah, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, We Die Alone, five stars. John, We Die Alone is one of the most amazing World War II stories you will ever read. The story is right up your alley. Love your podcast, Frank. Down from Frank the Taylor, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, like a fine bourbon. The intro music hooks you straight away. Then you sink down into a great fireside telling of many a great story. Well researched, and like a smooth bourbon, John delivers his histories and tales in his unique storytelling way. All the best. Jeff, Hertfordshire, U.K., Apple Podcast, Great Britain. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to sit down and write these reviews. They help new listeners find us, so they're greatly, greatly appreciated. Thanks to all of you for your support in so many ways, for sharing with friends, and for listening to our shows. We appreciate it. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back next Sunday night with Part 2 of Defiance, the incredible true story of the Bielski brothers. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.